Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again. We've been talking about 4M discipleship. Today, I want to continue our conversation in regard to 4M discipleship. And if you haven't been here, let me explain that to you. And if you have been here, let me make sure you were paying attention. 4M discipleship is the Great Commission. 4M discipleship is the Great Commission that it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's four M's here. There's make, and then mark, that is to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to mature them, which is to teach them all that I have commanded you, and ultimately to multiply them. Because he says, lo, I will be with you to the end of the age, which means that it's not going to stop with you. It's going to continue, and then it's going to continue until I come back. Your purpose of making disciples, marking disciples, and maturing disciples should never stop. Your responsibility, our responsibility, the church's responsibility generationally from the early church till now and until Jesus comes back, is to multiply those amongst us. Amen? This is a very serious charge that we're given. And here's why. Because Christianity needs to be taught from generation to generation. When we don't teach generationally Christianity and who Christ is, we get the society we're living in. When one generation drops the ball, what we think is not important or kind of important, the next generation will think is absolutely unnecessary. That's true. And so we have to keep it fresh in their minds, their responsibility, our responsibility, which is to make disciples, mark disciples, mature disciples, and then ultimately, through the continuing process of the disciple-making process, multiply disciples. Amen? And so that's what I want to talk about today. Our responsibility to multiplication. Because Jesus is with us and has given us authority, we are to multiply ourselves by making more disciples to the end of the age. This is our goal. This is what we should keep our eye on, the growth of the kingdom of God through the discipleship-making process. But it has to be generationally. I think Paul got it right. Well, I don't think Paul got it right. Paul got it right. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul says this, to Timothy, who happened to be a young pastor, and just so you know, a young pastor who was struggling. He says this, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I'm talking about multiplication. What does this have to do with multiplication? 
this verse is four generations of multiplication. It says this. He says, the things which you have heard from who? From me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You teach what you've heard me teach to people who will teach so that they may teach other people also. That's our greater responsibility to continue the process of discipleship our entire life so that the whole world will know. And can I tell you, I think the world's done a horrible job at this. The first century church man turned the world upside down. And we've done a great job since then turning it right back side up. Because we refuse to do what we're commanded to do because it's inconvenient for us, because we're worried about the ramifications. What happens if I say this in front of somebody else? Their sensitivities are going to be bruised or they're going to be have their feelings hurt or insert whatever reason we have for not doing it. We stand immediately opposed to the responsibility that we have to make disciples. And we have to stop. We have to move from not making disciples to making disciples and multiplying those disciples. Everybody all right? Man, I'm just going to talk plain to y'all today because I think at the end of all of this, we just need to hear a plain word from God about our responsibility. Now, I'll tell you, like I told you last week, our responsibility is only possible because we're empowered by the Spirit to fulfill that responsibility. You can't do this on your own. You shouldn't be able to try to do it on your own. And if you do try to do it on your own, you're going to fail. God indwelled you with the Holy Spirit so that you might be able to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But because we've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, this should be a simple process for us. Or at least we should have the strength to do it, regardless of whether it's simple or not. We should be pouring our lives out for this purpose. And when I say pour our lives out, I don't mean just on Sunday when it's convenient. I'm not talking about just on Wednesday night. I'm talking about when I get up in the morning, I pour my life out to God in prayer. When I'm on my way to work, I pour my life out to God in prayer and worship. When I get time to do it every day, I should be pouring my life out in the reading and the revelation of the Word of God. When I get an opportunity, I should be pouring my life out into the life of someone else through the process of discipleship. I should be constantly pouring my life out because it's what God created me to do, and it's because what God empowered me to do. And when I say me, I don't mean me. I mean us. I have no individual responsibility to grow the kingdom of God alone. That responsibility is our responsibility cumulatively. That's why God made us a body. That's why you have, you may be a finger, you may be an eye, you may be a foot, you may be a hand, because all of us together serve the greater purpose of serving so that through our service the kingdom might grow. Amen? Our job is to multiply them, like to live the life of the first century church. And I'm going to use the first century church to show you what 
multiplying them looks like with two bullet points. And I'm going to do it out of Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Most of you are familiar with this text, or relatively so. But I'm going to ask you, don't dismiss that which you may be familiar with. You guys have heard me say it before, familiarity breeds complacency. And I don't care if it's John 3.16, which you've heard a million times in your whole life. Let me tell you, that's a truth that should still be taking your breath away. And so it says this in Acts 2, I said 42, but I'm going to start in 41 for a purpose I'll explain in a moment. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. That was Peter's word, that is the gospel. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing. That's so good. Not on Sunday, not on Wednesday. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were saved. Amen. So let's talk about multiplication and how multiplication happens. First, and it's my first bullet point, multiplying disciples, disciples, multiply in devotion. Disciples multiply in devotion. What I mean by that is they applied themselves with an absolute commitment to the basics. They were devoted to the basic principles of the faith. And this is, this is out of 42 and 43. He says, they were continually, which means they never stopped, devoting themselves, which means give, giving constant, unwavering attention to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. These are the very basics of the Christian life. These four things, teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer are the very basics of the Christian life. Let me, why do I say that repeatedly? One, because it's true. But secondly, I read a book many years ago, back when I was reading such things, called uh, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And if you've never read The Art of War by Sun Tzu and you're interested in those kinds of things, I would recommend you do it. But he says this inside of it. He said, advanced techniques are the basics mastered. I have people as a pastor, I had people as uh, a, a police academy instructor come up and tell me, hey, show me the greater things of the faith or show me this greater technique. Can I tell you, if you can just get a hold of the basics, you'll be doing the greater things of faith. 
If you can get a hold of proper doctrinally sound teaching, that is advanced technique. Even though it's basic and who we should be, it is the way in which we advance. If we fellowship, it's the way in which we advance. If we commit ourselves and dedicate ourselves to prayer, it's the way in which we become advanced. Concentrate on the basics first. If we could concentrate on the basics first, we become who we should be, and in becoming who we should be, we teach others what they should look like, and the kingdom of God multiplies. Now, let me break these down for you. It says, teaching that they committed themselves. I'm going to read this again. They were continually, without stop, devoting which means to give constant, unwavering attention to. Are you giving constant, unwavering attention to? This is the practice of the early church. You want to know why the early church was so was multiplied so quickly? They went from zero to 3,000 like that. Because they were devoted to constantly unwavering attention to first, the apostles' teachings. I told you I'd, I'd make verse 41 make sense. Why I started there. Peter just got done preaching on the day of Pentecost. And it says 3,000 people were added to the kingdom of God. Imagine the chaos that must have been. I don't know if you guys have ever written systems, church systems, work systems, any kind of systems, but a system or a program that gets somebody from point A to point B, from front door to connection, that's no easy thing. Now, do that times 3,000. There were 120, and that 120, after one preaching, turned into 3,000. Peter had to be going, Oh, we got it. We need to get them connected to a life group. We need to get them connected to this. We need to get them doing this. He wasn't worried about any of that stuff. You know what he was worried about? He was worried about teaching them the things that Jesus taught him. If we could just concentrate first, just set the programs aside. And I know that's very anti-church sounding. Set the programs aside. Because if your programs aren't declaring the stuff that Jesus taught in the first place, you're wasting your time. And you're wasting the people's time who are listening to you too. We have to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. We have to hear the apostles' teaching. We have to hear the word of God being taught. You know why? Because faith comes by hearing. You want someone's faith to build so that they may be a more committed follower of Christ Jesus? so that they too can multiply once they've been added to, teach them the word of God, because faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word of truth. We can't dismiss the word. Secondly, it says, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Again, they gave themselves constantly and unwaveringly, unwavering attention to fellowship. It amazes me. I'm going I'm I'm to be ugly for a minute. When I gave my life to the Lord, I gave my life to the Lord. 
when I gave my life to the Lord, I gave my life to the Lord in a committed, devoted, unwavering way. When I heard that it was my responsibility as a Christian to sit under teaching, sound doctrinal teaching, I was in church every Sunday unless I was so sick I couldn't crawl in. But I never called in. You know why? Because the Word of God and the declaration thereof is important. But equally important is the fellowship of the believer. People say, I don't need church. Church ain't a building. Church is people. Church is also a building. Well, no, let me take that back. Church is also the people. It is a building. It is the place for Christian fellowship. It's where we get together, we talk, we build relationships, we hold each other accountable, which is what the Word of God tells us to do. We are told to hold one another accountable. It's where we encourage one another. All these things happen in fellowship. You know why the world's upside down right now? Because nobody loves anybody. We should be the best lovers on earth. We should love each other with the fire of a thousand suns. No matter what it costs us, we should love each other. And let me tell you, you set a person on fire like that and set them out in the middle of a field, it's a matter of time before somebody else comes and watches them burn and gets set on fire themselves. We struggle and suffer because we don't fellowship. How many of you guys know this truth? First John 1.17 says, we are washed of our sins by the blood of Christ. How many of you guys know that? The blood of Christ washes away our sins. Which means that if he, whatever God does, God does perfectly. I would, I would assume, I believe, according to the word of God, God's never half done anything. He does it, he does it perfectly. Amen? And so if I say, God, I have sin in my life, I repent of that sin, I ask that because of the relationship that we have, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ, you wash me clean, I can be sure that he's faithful to wash me clean. Would you guys agree with that? Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus leave any of that sin in you? Or did he wash you clean of it? The answer is he washed you clean of it. So why do we fall back into it? Because our fellowship is jacked up. That's good. Let me explain. Jesus says he'll wash it. But the word of God in James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Jesus washes it. The accountability, love, and taking care of one another heals it. Because he washed it, it's still open. It's still open to infection. It could still get diseased. But God tasked us with loving each other well enough to close that wound up through accountability and love and sew that wound shut so that it may be healed. Come on, somebody. Fellowship is necessary. But not just fellowship. Fellowship. We had to be fellowshipping with the right people. That's 
I don't have to know you. I have to know five people that know you. I have to know five people that you hang out with. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You're all, oh, no, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk in this lion's den. I'm going to make all these lions kittens. No, you're not. Probably. You'd have to be really mature to walk out of that undefeated. If I step into a mud puddle, I'm going to get mud on me. If I walk with the filthy, I'm going to become filthy. Make sure you know who you're fellowshipping with. And then finally, it says fellowship, breaking of bread, which means that they literally broke bread together. They enjoyed a meal together. They had communion together. Both of those things. Those of us from the South, I know there's a lot of people moving from the South, from California and different places, and it may be that way in those places, but let me tell you, in the South, you want to get to know somebody, you invite them over to your house. Let them try mama's baked beans or something. You'll get to know them. Because there's something about breaking bread that brings people together. And the same is true for communion. There's something about the communion table that brings people together that we all agree upon and are united in the breaking of bread and the shedding of Jesus' blood, remembering the work that he did on our behalf. That creates fellowship. That is proper fellowship. Amen? And then finally, they were devoted in prayer. Man, we talk, we talk man, we're a praying church. Have you guys noticed I took the prayer wall down? Some of you, probably not everybody. We had a great big prayer wall. It was like four foot by six foot. Had a bunch of pegs on it with some tags and stuff. You could pray, prayer request on there. It was up there for about four years. You know why I took it down? Because there wasn't a single prayer added to it in six months. I'm not saying people weren't praying over them, but I never saw anyone during service walk over there and pray over the tags that were there. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to take this down. Maybe we could just learn to be prayer warriors instead of talk about prayer warriors. Maybe we could be involved in prayer instead of writing about prayer. The fact of the matter is the church has to be a place of prayer. The church has to be a place of prayer. You think the word's important? It is. But let me tell you, if you can't take the word and dissect it in a way that you can have a relationship and a conversation with the God of the word, then you're not, you're not who you should be. And you certainly can't multiply who you should be in someone else. We have to be people of prayer. Leonard Ravenhill, and this is a paraphrase, says this about prayer. And it's so true, but it makes it so sad. He said, the prayer meeting has gone, way of sleep, gone the way of sleeping beauty. Neglected, tucked into a corner, covered in dust with no desire to awaken her. She really is the fairest of all, but neglected loses her strength. Man, we talk about prayer, but we don't pray. Or we don't pray through how many of y'all remember your grandmama talk about that? Boy, you got to pray through. You know what that means? That means pray till you get a breakthrough. 
That means pray till you're through praying. That means pray till you're through with the... You can't come up with any more words to say. You can't say, God, I love you. Love me today. Not that you can't pray that, but let me tell you, if you need a breakthrough, you need to pray through. The church needs to learn to pray through again. It's time to take the princess out of the corner of the church, dust her off, and give her her proper place. Amen? Where the church lacks in prayer, it lacks in everything. Why do I tell you all this? Because as we become people of good teaching, of fellowship, of breaking of bread and prayer, we become people that are attractive to other people who don't know God. Because we have peace they don't have, we have love they don't have, we have hope they don't have, we have stability and strength they don't have, and they want to know how do you have what I don't have. And then you know what you get to do? You get the glorious opportunity of making one. Amen? So multiplying them starts with the basics. But disciples also multiply by demonstrating Christian character. And this one's going to go by pretty fast. I just want you to know disciples multiply by demonstrating Christian character. The rest of this, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and they had all things in common. You know what a Christian character is? Unity. Jesus Christ died so that me, we might be one. We are one in Christ Jesus. There's no his, hers, yours. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free man. There is one in Christ Jesus. Amen? And so we must live as though we are one. When we live as we are, let me tell you, the world's dying to belong to something. That's why they get caught up in all this craziness. Because they don't know what to belong to, so they get trapped up in whatever. If we could show them the most significant thing they could get caught up in, which is in a relationship with Christ Jesus, and they start feeling the hope that you have, the love that you have, the truth that you have, the security that you have, the encouragement that you have, if they start feeling these things, let me tell you, they're going to want what you have. Because you cared enough to show them through your character what unity looks like. And then determined, just as Christ determined in us, even in their filthiness, to bring them along with you. Somebody preaching good in here. And that produces generosity. It says, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Now, let me take a second. I ain't talking about socialism. They were voluntarily giving up whatever they had to the benefit of another. Nobody was taking it from them and requiring that they give it to somebody else. Those are two completely different animals, just so you know. Christian generosity is a product of Christian unity. 
as I see my family in need or as I see someone else in need because of the family I belong to, I help those people. My papa was a good man. He wasn't saved till late in his life, but he was a generous man because he knew the family that he came from taught him to be generous. The family you come from should be teaching you generosity. The unity that you belong to should be teaching you generosity. And I'm not talking about your money. Well, I'm not talking about only your money. I'm talking about everything that you have. I'm talking about pouring yourself out again. Whatever it is that you have. Can I tell you, most of the people that I that I have the privilege of telling the gospel to, and, and everyone that I've ever prayed the message of salvation, the prayer of salvation over, was a product of my generosity. Now, it's a product of God's grace, but the generosity that I had in giving them the time to share with them so that they too might know. Unity produces generosity. And then it says, continues, and it says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart. Christians should be a glad person, should be a happy person, should be a content person, should have sincerity, should be truly and absolutely sincere in everything that they do. There should be no deceit in us. As mealy-mouthed Christians, kill me, man. The Bible says they were full of gladness. You ever see Christians walk around like this? Hey, man, how you doing? Well, you know, man, I don't know. My life's pretty hard. I got, I got the stuff going on. Well, that's good. You got that going on, but you got Jesus inside of you. You better turn that frown upside down. Somebody's watching you. Why would anybody want what you have if what you have looks like that? You can't multiply anything but your own ridiculousness if when you walk around looking like that. People are all, why are you always happy? Let me tell you, I'm not always happy, but you'll never not know I'm not happy. You know why? Because God deserves better than for me to walk around on my bottom lip all the time. It's our Christian character that helps multiply those around us. It's the basics of the faith that help us multiply those around us. And this is what happens when we do. Praising God, having favor with all the people. When we do that, people begin praising God, and we begin having favor with all the people. Isn't that the goal? And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Multiplication. I think that last verse is beautiful. They began praising God. They began having favor. And the Lord was adding to their number. And that's the end result of discipleship. You know what I love about this model? This 
make them, mark them, mature them, multiply them, and I know I'm over, but it'll be all right. Take a breath. You know what I love about this model? It's cyclic. Because as soon as I multiply them, that person that I've multiplied ought to be making. And that person making ought to be marking. That person marking ought to be maturing. That person maturing ought to be multiplying. And that person multiplying ought to be back up here to making. And round and round and round we go. This process should never stop. Never stop. Those things which you've heard from me, teach to faithful men, four generations is our responsibility. So I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. You're going to be surprised by this. I don't preach to hear myself talk. And if it's your first time here, know that you're always going to receive what I hope to be a gospel-centric challenge before you leave church every Sunday. Because I can give you information, but if I don't ask anything of you, I haven't done anything for you. This is what I want from you. I want you to tell people about Jesus so that they can tell people about Jesus so they can tell people about Jesus. There's a reason why we give you tools. The last, at the beginning of this series, I gave a card out that talked about our, who we are, or our testimony. Not just our testimony, but essentially it's a tract saying this is how you talk to people about God that you were a sinner, that God sent his son Jesus, and this is how you procure that promise. And I gave you green cards that said, come to church with me. You have everything that you need. And you have the spirit of God inside of you, which makes these other things pale in comparison. So here's the challenge. Tell somebody about Jesus as often as you can. And let me tell you, if you leave your house every day and say, God, give me an opportunity to tell somebody about who you are, he's not going to say, no, I don't want that. He's going to give you that opportunity because anything we ask according to his will, he hears us, and because he hears us, we have what we've asked for. Our problem is we pray that and then walk around a, walk around a place with our eyes closed and our ears shut so that when God does show us, we don't see or hear that. I got a second challenge for you. God has tasked me with the growth of the kingdom of God and this church. And if you go to church here, if this is your church home, you're tasked with growing this church too. That's true. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to invite as many people to the church as you can so that at the end of the year, at least one person that you invited stays. Now, that may mean you have to ask 10 people. But at the end of the year, ask enough people that one family stays. Did you know we could double the size of Launch Point Church between now and the end of the year? If everybody asked people to join and come sit with them at church, you have a promise for me. I'm never going to puff myself up. I'm never going to give the person you invite five ways to a better you. I'm going to give them a gospel-centric message, and I'm going to challenge them to live in righteousness. 
you ever wonder, man, I don't want to invite anybody to church. I ain't sure what my pastor's going to say. That's what I'm going to say. That's what I've said for seven years, and it's, I'm not planning on stopping anytime soon. You can feel confident inviting your friends here. Amen.